Okay, Matthew 3. Matthew 3, and it's good to be back with everyone this week. As I've told a few of you, we had a, a nice trip away with family in Maine, uh, but we did, we missed you. Sunday morning was a little different. We uh, attended a, a church up in Maine, and uh, it's different just to, to sit and uh, be a visitor in church. It's nice in some ways, but we missed our church family here at Ira Baptist. So I'm uh, very thankful that Dave uh, from First Step could come last week and, and share with us. And I went back and listened to his message. It was a, a great message and a great reminder uh, from John 10. And uh, But we're going to jump back into Matthew today. And we're going to pick up again in chapter 3, where we left off last time, beginning in verse number 13. So I'm going to read, starting in Matthew 3, uh, verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's go to the Lord, ask him to bless the reading and the study of his word this morning. Lord, all of Scripture is, is good. All of Scripture is useful. Uh, all of Scripture is edifying, and all of Scripture is a bomb to the soul. Uh, but certain passages, Lord, jump out at us. And I think in my mind, God, this is one of them where we see Jesus Christ uh, displayed, accoladed, uh, revealed for who he is. Lord, this happened on the banks of the Jordan River nearly 2,000 years ago, but the implications of it, the ramifications of the truth revealed here in this account is just as relevant for us today. May we take notice of it. And may we heed everything that follows it. And may we look to Jesus as we have just sung. No other name is worthy of this kind of glory. O oh Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate this passage in our minds today, uh, that we would be truly affected by it in the inner man. Use your word. I pray, Lord, as you promised, that it would not return void. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'll start this morning by asking you this question. How does it change uh, your view of a story when you know the outcome before you read the story? How do you look at the details of a story differently when you know uh, the end of it before you start? For instance, imagine you were reading a, a detective novel or a crime novel. Uh, the first time you read that novel, all the information is brand new to you. All the details are coming to your mind for the first time. Now, you may have preconceived notions about parts of the story or aspects of the story from the, from the cover or the, the prologue or things like that, uh, but you don't have the conclusion. 
You start to form your own conclusions as you read about characters and events and the facts and uh, the storyline. And about halfway through the book, you think maybe you've got it figured out, but you still don't know the outcome. There's a sense in which watching a story or reading a story as it's unfolding is invigorating. It, it keeps you on the edge of your seat or in maybe on the edge of your mind. If it's a good book or a good movie, then the first time you read it or watch it, it won't be the last time you watch it. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a series of books that I really enjoyed reading, and I bet I read them probably five or six times. Um, of course, after the first time I read those books, I already knew the story. I, I knew the conclusions. But why did I keep reading it? Well, because I enjoyed it, obviously. But why did I keep reading it? Perhaps it's this, when you understand the outcome of a story, the details begin to take on more and more significance. When you know, for instance, who the guilty party is in a crime novel, then every word and every action of that person in the story starts to be dripping with obviousness. You say, how could I have ever missed that? Or that makes perfect sense. It's an incredible advantage uh, to have the understanding of the outcome or the whole picture before you interpret the parts of a story. Now here in Matthew 3, uh, we have one of those defining revelations about the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, this is the kind of narrative that gives weight to the rest of the story that's going to follow all the way through Matthew chapter 28. When you see the rest of Jesus' words and actions interpreted through the information that we get from this story, then Jesus' life begins to drip with meaning in our mind. What is revealed about Jesus in this account gives meaning to the fullness of his whole coming and of his whole ministry. Interestingly, this is the first time that we see Jesus as an adult in the gospel records, and the words he speaks here are the first uh, recorded words of Jesus that we have since he was 12 years old in the temple uh, when he said, I must be about my father's business. Now he's 30 years of age, and Judea as a whole is about to be significantly shaken by this Jesus. You know, it's both strange and wonderful that Jesus lived in relative infamy for 30 years. No doubt, those right around him knew that there was something special about him. Uh, he would have been devout, but kind. He would have been uh, fastidious, but gentle. He would have been sinless, but humble. He would have been righteous, but not self-righteous. Still, his public teaching and ministry of miracles did not begin until after the event that we have here in this passage. And if we think of this story in terms of Jesus as the king, then we have here the public coronation, perhaps, uh, the public installation, or the outward testimony to the true reality that Jesus is the Messiah, that his mission is worthy, and that he is the sinless Son of God. Now, 
it would take some of Jesus' followers years to come to the realizations that are laid out in this passage. And truly, many of those around Jesus would remain ignorant of these truths. They would never come to that realization. But what we have here is the precursor uh, to the revelation that Peter finally comes to grips with in Matthew 16. And Peter's words are a good reminder of what Jesus' baptism tells us about. Jesus, or excuse me, Matthew 16, uh, verses 13 through 16. It says this, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And he said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. God had revealed that truth to Peter over the course of his walk with Jesus. But beloved, we are privileged to have that information here and now. Peter came to terms with that information. As he saw Jesus' teachings, his miracles, and his perfect life unfold. But we get to see and examine the glorious truth here at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew has already told us in the birth narrative that Jesus came to save people from their sins. He already told us through the works of John the Baptist that Jesus would be the greatest man to ever walk the face of the earth. He already told us through the genealogy and the virgin birth that Jesus was the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. But here at Jesus' baptism, we have all of these things confirmed by God himself. Here's kind of the big idea for today. Jesus' baptism gives a confirming image of his righteousness, his mission, and his divinity. Jesus' baptism gives a confirming image of his righteousness, his mission, and his divinity. See, three, uh, three things we'll divide this passage up in today. And the first one, if you're following along with the outline, is the Son's obedience, the son's obedience. Go back to verse number 13. Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. We pick up this narrative right after John's brief but scathing sermon to the Pharisees and Sadducees, a a sermon that revealed their lack of true repentance and a sermon that gave a promise A promise and a warning about the coming of one who is greater than John. One who would baptize in the spirit for life and in the fire for judgment. And with those words on our mind, we read verse 13. Just after John gets done saying, there is one coming who is greater than me. Right after that, we read, then comes Jesus from Galilee to the Jordan. Matthew does this on purpose, I think. We don't know if it was immediately after John said those words that Jesus came, but here as Matthew recounts this story, he puts it right there on purpose because as John says there's one coming, Matthew now tells us there he is. There he is. As soon as John finishes telling people about the one to come, the promised one walks onto the stage. 
Matthew is saying to his readers, John's prophecy about the greater one coming isn't just random speech. It's pointing to Jesus. Now, as we read that Jesus came from Galilee uh, to where John was, we shouldn't lose the significance of this journey that Jesus made. It doesn't tell us that anybody is with him. It doesn't give us any great details other than the fact that he came from Galilee. Now, John was in the, the southern part of Judea, west of the Jordan River. This would have been approximately a 70-mile journey for Jesus, and probably on foot at that. News had traveled about John's preaching and baptism, but Jesus wasn't coming like the Pharisees just to check out this crazed prophet. He was coming to be baptized by him. Now, different gospel records give us different uh, interlocking details about this story. And I want to look at something that John says in his gospel. Uh, he says, when, John, when Jesus approached the river, John the Baptist gave a stunning introduction. In John 1, verses 29 and 30, it says, The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. John the Baptist, being a devout man and a prophet, was well aware of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He was well aware of the sacrifices for sin, the repetitive, ongoing, year after year sacrifices. He was also well aware of the sin of the world. He was, after all, a preacher of righteousness, calling people to repentance from sin. So when he saw Jesus and he says, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was not just being kind. Uh, he was not mincing words. This was John saying, You know the one I've been telling you about? You know my message about the king being near? This is him. This is the one who is greater than me. John's words about Jesus taking away sin shows us that he had some revealed understanding about Jesus' own righteousness, about his sinlessness. And this is echoed in John's response to Jesus. When we come back to Matthew 3 and look at verse number 14. It says, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Uh, the tense in this language hints that John kept saying this. It's as if Jesus was coming and he, he wanted to be baptized. And John was saying, no, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus would be more persistent. And John would say, I need to be baptized by you. How can I baptize you? And Jesus kept coming and there was persistence. Finally, he gave in. It's interesting that John had no problem with his God-given task of calling people to repentance and to administer baptism as a sign of that. Uh, he had no problem with that ministry because he understood that people, including himself, were utterly sinful and they needed repentance. But when he saw Jesus coming to the baptism, his mind threw him for a loop. Why does the sinless one need baptism for repentance? And that's a question we ask as well. In verse number 15, Jesus gives a brief but a firm answer. Jesus says, let it be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill 
all righteousness. In other words, Jesus says, let's get on with the program, John. Let it be so now. It's the right thing for us to do. So the question is, how does Jesus' baptism fulfill all righteousness? And, and what does that mean? As we go through the book of Matthew, we'll see normally when Matthew uses the word fulfill, he's speaking in a way that points back to Old Testament scripture coming to life before our eyes. Uh, we've already seen several of these fulfillment quotations in the first few chapters. The word righteousness, as we'll see it used in Matthew, generally refers to the kind of conduct that God requires of his people, the kind of right living and right relationship before God and man that is required by God's law and his own perfect character. And the blatant fact is that nobody, not even John the Baptist, could himself fulfill all righteousness in this sense. Nobody could live the kind of conduct and uh, take the kind of relationships and have the kind of obedience that God requires in his law. Everyone fell short in some way, which is why John was preaching repentance. But Jesus could and did fulfill all righteousness in this way. And submitting to John's baptism, it was fitting in that it was part of Jesus' active obedience. What is Jesus' active obedience? It's the fact that Jesus was not simply born righteous, although he was born without the stain of original sin, but Jesus also remained righteous by not failing to keep God's commandments in even one way. Jesus was accused many times of, of subverting the law and destroying the law, and Jesus said that he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he was the only one who could fulfill it. Jesus is the perfect, sinless one. When John the Baptist came, he came as a prophet, anointed and sent by God. His preaching and his message was God's message for his people in that day. And when John commanded people to repent and be baptized, that was God's command. With Jesus' baptism then, he was submitting himself to the same humble obedience that every obedient Jew in that region did who came to John's baptism. But what about the repentance? Wasn't John's baptism a baptism of repentance? How could Jesus, the sinless one, rightfully take part in a baptism that was for something he had no need to do? It's important to realize that while John's baptism was for repentance, the act of baptism was not repentance in itself. Remember, our repentance doesn't consist simply in our right actions. Rather, our right actions speak outwardly of a radical inward change. Those who repented, were baptized, did so to signify this miracle, uh, this miraculous change of heart and mind. In Jesus' case, it wasn't a signal of inward change. It was a signal of inward righteousness that already existed, and it was an act of perfect obedience, as Jesus did fulfill all righteousness. But even beyond being a, a simple act or a signal of obedience, 
This was an identification. If you recall a couple weeks ago from our study of the first 12 verses, we said that John's baptism was an identification as one who was repentant, waiting for the kingdom of God. Jesus' baptism identified him with those people, people who did need repentance, people who needed forgiveness, as one who came to save his people from their sins, as one who came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus identified himself with those very sinners. I'm reminded of the great passage in Isaiah 53, which we studied not so long ago. It says of the suffering servant, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah prophesied about the suffering servant as one who would be righteous and would make many righteous. But this same perfectly righteous one would be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors when he took our sin in his own body on the cross. But I believe also that this baptism foreshadows that fact that he is numbered identified with the ones that he came to save. He identified with the sinful Israelites who had wandered from their God. He identified with the sinful Gentiles who needed cleansing to enter God's kingdom. He identified with you and with me as he foreshadowed that time when he would be baptized by death for the sins of all who call upon him in faith and repentance. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the son's obedience, secondly, as this passage unfolds, we see the spirit's anointing. Look at verse number 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. It's interesting because up until this point, all of this fact about Jesus' righteousness, uh, his obedience here, the, his statement about telling John that in doing this we will fulfill all righteousness, all of that from the pure context of a reader is kind of assumption without the rest of this narrative. Uh, we're told that John followed through with Jesus' request and Jesus was baptized, but immediately after that, when he went up out of the river, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and it comes to rest on him. This is a confirmation of what is taking place. Now, there are two instances that come to my mind when I read this narrative. The first is the inauguration of the ministry of Ezekiel. We won't turn to the passage, but when Ezekiel was called by God, we are told that he had a miraculous heavenly vision where the glory of God, to some extent, was opened up before his eyes. You can read Ezekiel's remarkable vision in the first chapter of his book. And after his vision, we are told that God spoke audibly 
and the Spirit of God came upon Ezekiel, set him on his feet, and Ezekiel was commissioned into his prophetic ministry. Another scene that I'm reminded of is at the stoning of Stephen. When Stephen was falsely accused of blasphemy and when he was stoned for his alleged crimes, while he was there on the ground receiving the blows from the rocks being cast at him, the heavens were opened up and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. In Ezekiel's case, the heavens were opened up for the sake of inauguration and commissioning. In Stephen's case, the heavens were opened up in confirmation, in comfort, and reception. Ezekiel was being sent into the life of ministry. Stephen was being welcomed home and comforted in his death that his ministry was legitimate. In these two ways, I think this narrative points back to Ezekiel and forward to the life of the church in saying, this is it. This is the one. Uh, this is the one that Ezekiel was pointing toward, and this is the one who Stephen died because of. Jesus was being commissioned in his earthly ministry, but he was also being confirmed in the sight of John and those witnessing. It's worthy to take note that Jesus wasn't necessary necessarily receiving a spiritual power or the spirit like we do after salvation. But what was being fulfilled here is the anointing. Isaiah prophesied about the anointing of God's chosen servant many times. Uh, one instance is in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus was and is the fulfillment of those kinds of prophecies. He lived, walked, and ministered not according to fleshly desires or seeking fame, but only according to the Spirit of God. And Jesus would confirm this about himself. When he stood in the synagogue, he read from that passage in Isaiah, and he said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was the anointed one, the Messiah. And like the crowning of a king, the spirit coming upon Jesus in this way signified that he was the one and that his work was legitimate. He was the one who came to save sinners, to bring them to repentance. He was the one to take away the sin of the world. The spirit coming upon Jesus in this moment shows that his ministry, was a God-ordained one. Finally, in this passage, we see the Father's confirmation. Verse number 17 closes this chapter. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I think it's really fitting and remarkable that we have the specific mention of all three persons of the Godhead in this passage. Uh, just as they were present together at the creation of the world, just as they have dwelt in unity, love, and perfection together forever and ever, here too at the baptism of Jesus, we see the perfection and the completeness of the Godhead, Father, Spirit, Son, at work, at the start of this ministry, this work of redemption. 
God, the Father, speaks from heaven with a voice instantly recognized by Jesus, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, scripturally, God's words here take us back again to the Old Testament in a couple of places. Firstly, uh, my mind went to Psalm 2, where it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, from Isaiah in chapter 42, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. It's interesting to note that both of these passages, Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, were seen as messianic prophecies long before Jesus came into the world. Uh, There were many of God's people holding on to these passages and looking for the coming of the Messiah. And here God speaks from heaven and says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. It's as if God is speaking from heaven and saying, this is the one. And this wouldn't be the only time we'll hear this confirmation. As Dennis read earlier uh, from the passage of the transfiguration, at the scene on that mountain where the glory of Jesus' divinity shone through like blinding light, where Peter, James, and John met with Moses and Elijah. Uh, If you recall, Peter wanted to stay there. He said, let's build three tabernacles. Uh, It was around the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles, and Peter said, let's just build three tents right here and just camp out a while. But God said, God's voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Why would he say that? Well, in Mark's gospel, we're told that not long before the transfiguration, Jesus predicted his death. And in that moment, Peter wouldn't have it. Uh, Peter rebuked him for speaking about something so unimaginable. So as God reveals the glory of his son and speaks from heaven... In a special way, those words came to Peter and says, listen, this is the one. What he says is true. Listen to him. This is the plan. Listen to him. In a similar way, I think the Father's words at Jesus' baptism were a confirmation to Jesus. They were a confirmation to John, but they are a confirmation to all of us as well. You see, there's a tendency to think that Jesus is kind of the new and improved version of God. There's a tendency to think that uh, the Old Testament version of God is sort of mean and vindictive and judgmental, but Jesus is loving and merciful and kind. But Jesus' coming is not God version two. Uh, Jesus' coming is not, well, that didn't work, time for plan B. Jesus is not the new version of God. Jesus is God. The same essence and being, co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit. God's confirmation here is that Jesus is his beloved Son. 
And it's not the start of Jesus' deity. It's not Jesus becoming God. It is Jesus being revealed for who he truly was all along. The great passage in Hebrews, it's a little lengthy, but I just want to read this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, there's a lot in that passage, and the author of Hebrews quotes a lot of Scripture, but just to see the highlights, uh, Jesus is how God has spoken to us and revealed himself to us in these new covenant days. But Jesus wasn't created. He didn't come into existence at this time. Rather, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the same essence in nature, and he created the world. And he upholds the world also. Jesus is God's eternal son. He's not a glorious creation like the angels. Rather, he's the one of whom we can say, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Yes, Jesus is God, the eternal son of God, and he is the king. Here at his baptism, we see the inauguration of his earthly ministry but we don't see the start of his existence. That's critical to keep in mind. Remember, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Before the world, Jesus was. Before time began, Jesus is. John the Baptist says, as we recall that passage in John, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Later in the book of Revelation, we read that Jesus is the Lamb who is slain, and those whom he saves have their names written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. This whole scene, the baptism, the confirmation, the voice from heaven, is the eternal plan of God coming to fruition before the eyes of mankind. Briefly, as we close, uh, we ask this question, what does this mean for us? Firstly, uh, Jesus' righteousness is real righteousness. Uh, we spoke of both the sinless perfection and the active obedience of Jesus. Uh, this is Jesus, a real human, 
who perfectly obeyed every word and detail of the law, and he did it for us. He fulfilled all righteousness in his living and his dying. Uh, Hebrews tells us that Jesus was faced with every kind of temptation that we face. He was a real person, and the temptations were real. Yet, he remained sinless. If righteousness is, is right living and right relationship before God and man, then none of us can ever achieve it perfectly. But Jesus did. Jesus' righteousness is real righteousness. Uh, Jesus' mission was a real mission. He came to save sinners. He came to take away the sin of the world. Because Jesus alone is righteous, he alone qualifies for that undertaking. He identified with the sinner in baptism. He was numbered with the transgressors in his dying. But he accomplished his task. He has made a way for us to be made righteous with an alien righteousness. We can never achieve perfect righteousness, a standing before God on our own. But we can have one that is not our own, one that is put upon us, placed to our account by the work of Christ. Jesus' divinity and kingship is real. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He was not made God's Son. He did not become God's Son. He was not adopted as God's Son. He is God's eternal Son. The same essence, the same substance, and the same being. He is the real anointed one, the real Messiah. He's not a poser or a pretender, as many would come to be. Rather, his life and ministry was confirmed here and would be confirmed throughout the rest of his life also. Lastly, we see that his teaching is for us. All of this, this confirmation, this anointing, this voice from heaven, from God the Father, all of this means that everything Jesus says and does Everything that we have recorded of him in the Gospels is undeniably critical for our lives. His works, his teachings, his commandments, his death, it is all critical for us and our eternal life. Jesus has much to say about our entrance into his kingdom and also about our conduct as members of his kingdom. And we must pay attention to it. This passage, as the divine confirmation of Jesus in this narrative, stands as kind of a gatekeeper to the remainder of the Gospels and says, from now on, if you don't see Jesus the way he's presented here, you see a false Jesus. If you don't see Jesus the way he's presented and acclaimed and confirmed in this passage, then you see a false Jesus. You see, folks, we have the privilege of reading the rest of the story with this conclusion in mind. Yes, Jesus is remarkable. Yes, he is a great teacher. But these are true only because he is God and he is king. And in the words of God the Father, this is his beloved son. Listen to him.